And if you would uh, allow me to just extend that prayer for just a moment. Father, we open ourselves up now to whatever your spirit would want to say. We want to continue our posture of worship before you by opening up our hearts. You are the great I am. And our only way of knowing you is if you'll reveal yourself to us. And so we pray that through the scriptures and through your Holy Spirit, you would reveal and make yourself known. And may our hearts embrace who you reveal yourself to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we have come to the sixth installment of our I Am series. And in this sermon series, we have been looking at seven statements that Jesus used to describe himself, each statement beginning with the phrase, I am. And the simple idea behind this entire sermon series is this, loving relationships require both people to be known. Loving relationships require both people to be known. You cannot grow to love somebody you don't know. And Jesus knows us intimately and loves us completely. But for the relationship to be healthy, strong, and vibrant, the dynamic of knowing and loving has to flow both directions. We must come to know him. So in the So in these seven statements, Jesus is revealing himself, inviting us to draw near, to know him more fully, to love him more deeply. The seven I am statements and where they're found in John's gospel are located uh, in your sermon notes and they will appear on the screen behind me as well. The statement we're going to look at today is I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's found in John chapter 14 verse 6. But before we jump into the meaning of those words and their implications for how we live as followers of Jesus, we need to have a basic understanding of the larger context uh, in which these words occur. And that larger context actually begins in chapter 13, verse 1, and goes all the way through to the end of chapter 17. So I'm going to take just a few minutes, and I'm going to paint the larger picture for you, and then we're going to zoom in and look at chapter 14, verse 6. Chapter 13, verse 1, opens by telling us that the feast of the Passover is approaching, and Jesus knows that his hour has come, that he would be departing out of this world and returning to his Father. And then in verses 3 through 17, Jesus is sharing the Last Supper with his disciples. They're in the upper room. And at some point during the meal, Jesus got up from the table, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around himself, and began to wash the feet of the disciples, searing into their, the minds of these young men, searing into their minds a picture of servanthood they would never forget. They would never forget that. Their Lord, their rabbi, their Messiah, washing their feet. And just as a side note, we're kind of familiar with that story, many of us, and we're just familiar enough with it that it no longer really shocks us when we read it. But you know what? It should. It should. That story is meant to alarm us especially when we understand who it is that's washing the disciples' 
feet. Colossians 1.15 describes Jesus as being the one by whom all things have been created, both in heaven and on earth. All things were created by him and for him. And now this same Jesus, who in whom all things hold together, is kneeling down in front of his disciples, washing their feet. Even the feet of Judas, who was about to leave the table and the room, and go to betray him. I can't linger here. That's for another sermon. But oh my goodness, what we see in these 15 verses should humble us and stir us deeply. Moving on, in verses 18 to 30, Jesus reveals that one of the 12, one of the 12 core disciples is going to betray him, shocking and disturbing the rest of the group. And they try to understand who is Jesus talking about. Interestingly, not everybody looks at Judas. We know the end of the story, but they don't. And not everybody looks at him. The text is they start looking around the table saying, who could it be? And Jesus has a quiet conversation with Judas, who then leaves the room. But even then, only John, who happens to be reclining next to Jesus, understands what just transpired between those two. And then in verses 31 to 33, Jesus announces that he will be leaving the disciples, going to a place where they cannot follow. And this was deeply disturbing to the disciples on a number of levels. And finally, to cap it all off in verses 36 to 38, as Peter is boldly proclaiming his love for Jesus and his willingness to lay down his life for him, Jesus, Jesus informs Peter that before the rooster crows the next morning, Peter would deny three times that he even knew who Jesus was. Which just would have been so upsetting to the group. They would have begun to reason amongst themselves. If Peter, kind of the chief disciple amongst us, if Peter were to deny Christ before the night is through, how can the rest of us hope to fare any better? And I think in their minds they must have wondered, if this is just the tip of the iceberg, is there more trouble coming? Is Jesus not telling us something more? They had left everything to follow Jesus. They had walked away from homes and parents and siblings and jobs. Was it really going to all come crashing down around them? Were they really going to be left on their own? This group of young men, and remember, they were young men, probably in their teens. This group of young men were anxious discouraged, deeply troubled, and probably more than just a little bit scared. And this is where our passage comes into the storyline. Jesus realizes what is happening in the hearts of his disciples. And so he says to them in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And then Jesus would continue on in chapters 14, 15, and 16 to explain that another comforter was coming to be with them in his absence, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit would guide and teach and equip and convict and comfort the followers of Jesus while Jesus was gone until he returned again. And finally, in John 17, Jesus prays for his followers, not only for those who have gathered in the room with him that day, but also for all of those who would come to believe through their testimony. That's you and me, friends. Jesus prayed that day for you and me because we have, down the line of succession, we have come to believe because of the apostles' testimony. So that's the larger context. It was a deeply troubling and anxious time for the disciples. They had left everything, risked everything, and followed Jesus for three years. And now on this night, as they sat around the table um, eating together what we've come to call the Last Supper, their world is being turned upside down. Everything is being upended for them. And so in this passage we're looking at today, Jesus pauses to give them hope and reassurance. He offers them words of comfort and encouragement and words of strength. Now let me walk you through these first six verses of chapter 14. This is the immediate context of our verse. Let me unpack so that we can digest these six verses more closely together. In verse 1, Jesus is... Uh, he is genuinely concerned about what is happening in the hearts of his closest friends. They're all sitting together in the upper room, and he knows how shaken they are. And he so badly wants to calm their fears and their doubts and their dread and their anxiety. And so he says to them in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus tells them, don't be troubled. He tells them to push back against the anxiety that they feel. And I know that that's no small thing Jesus was asking them to do. But thankfully, he immediately tells them how to do it, how to push back. He says, you push back by trusting in God, trust also in me. The word Jesus uses here for trust is the same word used in John 3, 16, that's translated believe, where it says who, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's the same word. When Jesus used this word, he was not talking about a kind of cognitive belief, an intellectual agreement. I agree in my head that this would be true. No, not at all. He is talking about a deep-seated commitment, an allegiance of one's heart. Drive the stake in the ground. This is about loyalty to a truth, to orient our life around it. In a way, Jesus was saying, bring to your mind, to trust in God, I want you to bring to your mind everything that you have learned about him, his faithfulness, his compassion, his mercy, his power, his might, his eternal unchanging nature, his wisdom, and his love. And in these dark, uncertain, anxious moments, confidently trust lean into all of those things about him. Trust in God. And in the same way, in the same way, trust also in me. Trust me. Then verses two and three 
allude to one of the marriage customs of Jesus' day. In that culture, once a young man was betrothed, or what we would say engaged, then that son would customarily return home and he would add a room, a living space, to his father's house. And when the room was ready, the son would come back to his fiancée who was waiting for him, would marry her, and then he would take her home to be with him to live in his father's house in the room that he had prepared for them. That was the marriage custom of the day. So now, hear Jesus' words. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. This speaks all about Jesus' commitment to us. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Jesus is reassuring these anxious young men that their hearts did not need to be troubled. They could trust him. And even though he was leaving them for a while, he would return for them. They could count on it. You can count on it, Jesus says, just as assuredly as the groom can be counted on to return to the Mary, the bride he loves so much. You can count on it. I will return for you. I almost said, I'll be back. And then I realized that's like Terminator thing. Like, okay. <laughs> okay, in verse 4, Jesus says, you know the place, you know the way to the place I'm going. But this actually confused the disciples. Jesus had said he was going to his father's house in verse 2. But did he mean he was going to the temple? He had referred to that as his father's house earlier. But in the previous chapter, chapter 13, he had said that where he was going, they could not come. What, what does this mean? And Thomas spoke up for the group and kind of voiced his confusion. Verse 5 says, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus replied in verse 6 and proclaims the sixth I am statement. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So now we're going to spend just a few minutes talking about what Jesus meant by this statement. And at the end, we'll talk about how to apply it to our lives in 2020. He begins his statement with these powerful two words, I am. And as I have explained in previous weeks, this was the sacred name God used to identify himself in the Old Testament. It is written as Y-H-W-H. It's four letters. Y-H-W-H. It's pronounced Yahweh. And it is called the Tetragrammaton because tetra means four. Grammaton is letters. The four letters. So when Jesus used this sacred and most revered name of God to describe himself, he was fearlessly claiming to be God. We've talked about that a number of times in previous messages. But what did Jesus mean when he identified himself as the way, the truth, and the life? What did he mean by that? Well, when Jesus says he is the way, this means that he is our path. He is our bridge to the Father. He's not just an example or a road sign 
along the side of the road pointing ahead to the Father. Jesus is the definitive revelation of his Father. Jesus makes his Father known, not only through his teachings, but also in the way he lives his life. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Jesus is an image or a copy of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says he's the exact representation of his being. This means that Jesus' answers, teachings, and commands were always true, and they always represented his Father perfectly. He was the exact representation of his father. There was no shadow of dishonesty, distortion, or deception that ever tainted his life. Jesus was not just an ambassador of truth. I'm sorry, I skipped a line. He is, yeah, I just skipped a whole paragraph there in my notes. <laughs> that kind of throw you into confusion? Let me back that up a little bit. <laughs> so Jesus is uh, not just a road sign pointing us to the Father. Jesus is the way. Our connection to the Father is through Him. Forgiveness and peace with the Father come through Jesus, specifically through His death and His resurrection. He is our only way, and any other way and all other efforts will come up short. They just will. Now, when Jesus says he is the truth, he's, what he means is he is the source of all truth. That he is the embodiment of the truth about his Father. He's the definitive revelation of God. He makes his Father known in his teachings, but also in the way that he lives. To see him is to see the Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, meaning an exact copy of this means that Jesus' answers, teachings, and commands were always true, and they perfectly represented his Father. No shadow of dishonesty, distortion, or deception ever tainted his life. He is not just an ambassador of truth. He is the truth. And when Jesus says, I am the life, it means that he possesses, controls, and distributes all of life. All of life is in his hand, both earthly life and eternal life. The word Jesus used here is the same word that he used with Martha last week when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And it means that Jesus has the power and the authority from his Father to impart life, to maintain life, and to restore life. Now again, Jesus spoke these words to a group of young men whose hearts had just been shaken and whose minds had just been rattled with the news that one of them in their midst was going to betray Jesus, another one in their midst was going to deny Jesus, and Jesus himself was leaving the group. And so Jesus offered them these words of reassurance to lower their anxiety. He tried to give them words of hope to diminish their despair. He offered them words of comfort to reduce their sorrow and words of encouragement to lessen the discouragement they were feeling. But I think something else is going on here as well. There's more to this. Because Jesus also knew what was about to happen 
that he was going to be seized, tried, convicted, and crucified in the next few hours. Jesus knew this was coming. Remember, it said he knew that his hour had come. And so when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he knew that his disciples would need those words to anchor themselves in the dark and stormy time that was just around the corner for them. Here's what I mean. Jesus was about to be crucified on the cross like a common criminal. His disciples would need to know, I am the way. I am. Even when it doesn't look like it, I am. He was about to be condemned by the lies of men and his disciples needed to know, I am the truth. Jesus' body was about to be placed in a tomb and his disciples needed to know he is the life. You see, when Jesus spoke these words that night in the upper room, he intended these words to give comfort and strength and hope to his disciples, not only for the unsettling news that they had just received, but also for the traumatic events that were about to unfold for them. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us in this day? that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I think it means a number of things. I'm gonna mention three. First, it means that Jesus is still the way to the Father. Jesus is still the way to the Father. Because Jesus is the way, salvation and reconciliation with the Father happen through Jesus. The Bible is clear that every one of us have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. And our sin separates us from God and places us under his judgment. But Jesus is inviting you this morning to believe that he is who he says he is, that he is the way. That through his broken body and shed blood, forgiveness and reconciliation to the Father are offered to every one of us. Turn to him in repentance. Acknowledge your sin and your rebellion and ask for his forgiveness. And then trust him to be your source of truth, to lead you and to guide you. And let him be your savior and Lord. And if you'll do that this morning, Jesus promises to grant you eternal life. But I think there's something more for us to to, uh, recognize about Jesus being the way. When Jesus said he was the way, he was also fulfilling Old Testament imagery. You see, the tabernacle and the temple both contained a huge veil or curtain that separated the common people from the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God resided. And once a year, only on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, and he did it by passing through the curtain. But on the day that Jesus was crucified, having having paid the penalty for our sin and satisfied God's judgment against us, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
The writer of the New Testament book Hebrews picked up on this. And in chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, he said that because of the blood of Jesus, we now have confidence to enter into the holy place. We can come into the presence of God, not because of who we are, but because of the blood of Jesus. The veil represented Jesus's flesh. And just as his flesh was torn open at the crucifixion, so the curtain of the temple was torn open when he died. Physically, the way to God was now open by going through the torn curtain. But spiritually, the way to God was now open by going through the torn body of Jesus. Do you see? Jesus is the way. Access to God comes only through him. Which leads to my next point, which is that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to the Father. We see this in the final phrase of verse 6, where Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is similar to the idea we talked about a couple of weeks back when Jesus called himself the gate. Remember back in John chapter 10, verse 7. And his point there was that no one comes into his sheep pen without going through him. He is the gate. And now Jesus is saying that he is the only way. And in an age of tolerance and religious pluralism, Christianity's exclusive claims are considered narrow, intolerant, hateful, and unacceptable. Our society believes that any religious viewpoint should be accepted as true as long as it is inclusive. However, it is logically impossible for all religions to be right because at their core, they are mutually exclusive. One writer put it this way. He said, if reincarnation is true, then heaven with God must be false. It must be. If salvation is earned through good works, then it cannot also be by grace through faith alone. If the Quran is the word of God, then the Bible cannot be. If Buddha has declared the truth, then Jesus cannot be declaring it as well. You see, any religion worth its salt must be exclusive because it is claiming to possess and then pass on to all of us ultimate truth which automatically excludes everything that opposes it. Only one can be true, and Jesus asserts that he alone is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. And Jesus' claim to exclusivity is unmistakable. It forces an unconditional response. Jesus invites people to either accept him or reject him, making it clear that partial acceptance, partial acceptance is rejection. But notice that Jesus' invitation, the invitation is not exclusive. His invitation is open to everyone. Just a couple of weeks ago, I reminded you that Jesus is calling men and women, young and old, rich and poor, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He is the creator of all, and he offers to be the savior of all. So Jesus' invitation is inclusive, meaning that it is open to everyone. But the way of salvation, 
The way a person is saved is exclusive. There is only one way to be saved. When Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, he is nullifying every alternative plan of salvation. Luke says the same thing in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So while some would say this is too restrictive, the truth is that attitude simply fails to grasp the desperate state of the human condition. The fact that there is any way at all to the Father, the fact that there's any way at all, is evidence of God's grace and his love. R.C. Sproul passed away earlier this year. He's a theologian, pastor, and author, one of my favorites. And he said this, I think it's because here in the U.S., all religions are equally tolerated under the law. So we make the leap from being equal under the law to being equal before God. But that leap is not that leap is unfounded. Only Jesus can give men salvation and eternal life and access to the Father. There is no other way except through him. Third and finally, Jesus says, uh, sorry, Jesus is the way to know the Father. Jesus is the way to know the Father. You know, since the creation of the world, God the Father has been revealing himself to his creatures. And it's a good thing because if he didn't make himself known, we would have no way of coming to know him. The Bible talks about several different ways in which God has revealed himself to us. Psalm 19 and Romans 1, for example, say that he has revealed himself to us in the things that he has made. We can look around at creation and see, and there are things about him revealed in creation. Romans chapter 2 tells us that God has revealed things about himself in the way that he has made us. Talks about our conscience and our sense of right and wrong. The scripture says that God has written things about himself upon our hearts. And then third, God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the scriptures are breathed out by God. He breathed them out, inspired them. And he reveals himself to us on every page. But it was the author of Hebrews who said in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. God has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is the exact representation of his father, the image of the invisible God, like a Xerox copy. And he who has seen Jesus has seen the father. My point is that Jesus came to make his father known. He's still the, the way to know the father. When Jesus said he only did what he saw his father doing, part of what that means is that people come to know the father as they encounter the son. You watch what Jesus does and you come to know what the father is like. Matthew eleven twenty seven reminds us that no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. 
So again, only through Jesus can we know the Father. And the reason I uh, try to articulate that out is because this idea, this truth, is still essential for our spiritual development today. We are best able to understand the heart and mind and will of the Father by observing, studying, and reflecting upon the life of Jesus. If you want to know how the Father feels about something, look to see how Jesus felt about it. To be more specific, if you want to know what the Father thinks or feels about marriage, money, prayer, worship, ethics, relationships, work, government, or any other number of topics, simply look to see what Jesus taught about them because his teaching is always a perfect representation of his Father's heart, mind, and will. Through Jesus, we come to know the Father. And because of that, one of the most important and productive investments that you can make in your pursuit of spiritual maturity is to read and study the life of Christ. One of the most important and productive things you can do. And so this morning, I want to ask you if, you if you would consider how you might do that in the last few weeks of this calendar year. How might you invest in uh, studying, reading, reflecting upon the life of Christ in the remaining weeks of this calendar year. I wonder if, you, if any of you would choose or would consider choosing one of the four Gospels and reading it from start to finish between now and Christmas Day. Just choose one Gospel and just read it between now and Christmas Day. You could do it by reading a chapter, chapter a day or less. Or if you were more aggressive, want a little bit bigger challenge, I wonder if some of you would join me in reading all four Gospels between now and the end of the year. Read all four Gospels between now and the end. And I know that sounds like a lot, but actually it's not. If we'll read just two chapters a day, we'll get through it. Anybody here up for that kind of challenge? To, to be immersed in all four Gospels between now and the end of the year. Or I wonder if some of you others might, be, uh, might want to stop up at the church library and check out a book that talks about the life of Christ and maybe spend some time in that. I'm suggesting these ideas, and you can come up with, with other ones, that's fine. I'm suggesting these ideas because a lot of different issues have held our attention captive during 2020. Isn't that, isn't that right? In 2020, we've had COVID, working from home, schools online, racial tension, and the upcoming election, just to name the big ones. But I wonder, I wonder how God the Father might make himself known to us in a new and fresh way if we would choose to finish out 2020 by focusing and reflecting on the life of his son. I wonder what new thing he might show us in the last few weeks of this year. And I wouldn't want you to miss out on that adventure. As I stated at the beginning, loving relationships require both people to be known. You cannot grow to love someone you do not know. Jesus already knows us intimately and loves us completely. But for the relationship to be strong and vibrant and uh, healthy, the, di the dynamic of knowing and loving has to flow both directions. So we have an opportunity, it's an invitation for us to come to know him more so that we can love him more 
And I hope you'll accept my invitation in giving focused attention to Jesus over the next uh, few weeks. Well, that's all I have for this morning. So next week, we're going to finish the I Am series. We've been in it for six weeks. Next week, we finish it up. And we're going to look at Jesus' statement in John 15, I am the vine. And I'd like to just say something to you as uh, your pastor. This has been such a rewarding sermon series for me personally. I have grown in my understanding of Jesus and... um, This has been such a meaningful and rich experience for me. And I have tried to dig into and unpack and then present to you the depth and the richness of each of these I am statements. And I hope that it's been as meaningful and challenging for you as it has been for me. So we will finish it up next week and I'm going to pray. And then the worship team is going to come and close our service. Heavenly Father, we ask you again, uh, to move by your Holy Spirit to make yourself known to us. God, as we open up the pages of Scripture, I pray that your Spirit would open up our eyes. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 or 3 says that spiritual things can only be understood with the help of the Spirit. And so we ask you to uh, be strong in our spirit by your Holy Spirit to help us see you to know you. God, we ask that you would reveal things to us that are new and fresh and exciting. We can only come to know you if you'll make yourself known, and so we ask you to do that. Lord, you have been so good in this series, and we look forward to, uh, with excitement, to uh, looking at Jesus' statement next week, I am the vine. We pray that you would uh, continue to bless our morning and... uh, Thank you for all that you are doing in our midst. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.